This week's episode of the Nerdist Writers Panel is brought to you by T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours, starting at midnight each day. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury adds more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. But you should really just buy them the first time around. So visit T-Fury every day and then get a shirt because it's gone after 24 hours. T-Fury shirts cover all of your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Daily. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you miss the day's shirt by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. I, uh, I got Karina Longworth, you guys, and I am excited about it because I just pulled her off the microphone. And now I'm saying it on. Uh, your new book is terrific. It's Thank you so Meryl much. Meryl Streep, Anatomy of an Actor, is that correct? Yes. Um, and it's, you can get it on Amazon. <laughs> We're going to say that. You can. They <laughs> might not ship it right away, but hopefully right. by the time you listen to this podcast, that glitch will be solved. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really great, and I think people will like it. It's, it's, um, well, why don't you talk about the premise of it, because I have specific questions about kind of okay. how it came together. Cool. Um, I was commissioned to write it by Cahiers de Cinema, the French film magazine, um, and they basically came up with this format where they ask a writer to pick 10 films that a specific star is in and try to tell the story of their career through analysis of those 10 films. Yeah, and so um, I, I wrote a book in the same series about Al Pacino about mm. two years ago. And, uh, you know, I enjoyed writing a book about Al Pacino. He's a great actor. There's some fun stuff to talk about. But then when they asked me to do it about Meryl Streep, at first I was going to say no because I thought I wasn't that interested. And then as I started just doing some preliminary research to see if I was interested, I became really interested because mm. I realized that there's never been, a, like, a long form study of her career. The mm. last book that was published about her was in the 80s. It's out of print. And so much has happened in her career since then. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I found, much to my surprise, that nobody had really ever considered her as a feminist artist. Um, and to me, there was so much to say about that. So I, you know, decided to say it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this really interesting feeling of discovery as you're going through it. And yeah. I don't know if that was your experience in doing the research. But totally. Like, as a reader, and you know these movies, like you pick mm -hmm. ten roles of hers that we all know. Right. I mean, they're not like these small films, uh, which is also part of what's really interesting about mm -hmm. it. Um, but discovering these facets of this actor and these characters that you never really considered before. What was the what was the research process like? Well, whenever I am going to start working on anything, I usually go to the um, Margaret Herrick Library, which is the library run by the Academy. Mm -hmm. um, and they have, not only do they have a lot of amazing film books, but they have this thing where like, you can go to a desk and give them the name of basically anybody who's ever been involved in any film. And they like, go into the, their archives and they bring you these files. And um, it's in the files, it's basically every magazine or newspaper article that they've been able to find oh that's ever been written about this person. That's Some of them are microfiche, but a lot of them are actual physical things. So it's yeah. like, you know, I sp for this book and also the Al Pacino book, like I would just spend, you know, it, probably about a month, like going to the library every day that they were open and going through those files and just taking notes. Wow. And when you do that, you know, you... First of all, you get a lot of great quotes that people like have forgotten <laughs> about and stuff like that. Um, but you also get a sense of like the arc of somebody's career mm -hmm. in a way that it's really hard to any other way, I think. Mm -hmm. 
So that's how I start. And then um, with this one, I had a really, really tight deadline. Like after I had finished the research, I think the book was due about like six weeks later. Oh, wow. Um, so I <laughs> just set really intense deadlines for myself. I think I was writing basically a chapter every five days. Um, oh and that's how I got the first draft done. And then, it, you know, it goes through revisions right. and stuff. But. but this is not, I mean, these are dense chapters. Too. Yeah, like each one's like, long... each one is basically a 5,000 word like critical film mm-hmm. essay. Yeah, we should say like this is not a biography. Mm-hmm. This is this is criticism. Yeah, um, and that's what really made me want to talk to you. Was this always your take on movies? Did you go into? I mean, we'll, we'll, we're getting into your biography now, but did you go into you know the world of think, film thinking I want to make films in some way, or was it always I love reading them, I love exploring them? I don't think I knew what I wanted to do for a really long time. I just knew that I was really interested in film, but I was also interested in art. And so I, yeah, my undergraduate degree is from an art school. I went to two art colleges mm-hmm. um, before I finished my undergraduate. Um, and the first one was the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which didn't require you to pick a major. So I took classes in all kinds of things, including filmmaking. Like I learned how to use a Bolex and a flatbed editing machine. And I took classes in the video art department. Um, and I t- also took weaving classes, you know, I took a lot of different things. And then when I transferred to the San Francisco Art Institute where I finished, um, they didn't have as wide a range of things to study and you also had to pick a major. So I was a film major there, although I was mostly working in video and I was making these uh, for like the last two years I was there. Mostly what I was making were these short videos, which now would totally have a home on YouTube or something. But back then, you know, or in the early OOs, it was more unusual, but there were these short videos that were basically like, um, I guess sort of diaries about what I was watching. Like I would get obsessed with something like watching reruns of moonlighting on Bravo. And then I would make a video about my obsession with moonlighting. And they, (laughs) well, it was always a combination of like found footage, either like I would like tape TV on a VCR Mm -hmm. and then use the VHS and like get it into final cut pro. And so everything was kind of fuzzy and, I, they, it, they, all the videos were always like kind of dreamlike anyway, but it would usually be a combination of that and then something I would shoot involving me. So they were very autobiographical, mm-hmm. um, but there was no context for them at all because there was no internet video. The art world was like, I don't understand this. This isn't art. Um, the film festival world wouldn't have shown any of that stuff because I was stealing so much material. <laughs> um, and so I was just sort of at a loss and I ended up just applying to graduate school if, like for film studies programs and media studies programs because it seemed like maybe that was the only place that would take me. <laughs> like there was just nothing to do. I actually came, moved to LA right after graduate school for six months and I tried to get a job like at the e-network and like places that were, <laughs> you know, I basically I was like, well, all, the only thing that I've proven that I know how to do in art school is that I could like do editing that's sort of like an E! True Hollywood story. And so I was trying to get jobs like that, like, like, you know, applying for like every internship at World of Wonder. Um, And I got like one call back and it was for a company that I later realized like wanted me to edit porn. And so, um, but I had applied to all these graduate schools and then, uh, you know, I got a letter saying that I got into uh, the NYU Cinema Studies program, which is a really competitive program. And my dad was so tired of having me like around the house that he was just like, well, you have to go. Like you, you're not doing anything else. And so I went to graduate school in cinema studies and, um, didn't know if I was going to be an academic or what. And Mm. basically I, what changed was that I took a class with Jim Hoberman, otherwise known as Jay Hoberman, the longtime film critic for the village voice, um, and it was the only class in my two and a half years at NYU that was actually about writing. Hmm. And it was through that class that I realized that I could actually write film reviews for a living. Oh, funny. Well, I was going to ask about that, and, and <laughs> this is a good good place for it. What was your relationship to writing before that? I had always written stuff. Um, I had always like written little short stories and, um, you mm-hmm. know... Uh, I guess like sort of autobiographical stuff Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, And then I kind of realized in college when I was in art school that I was getting better grades in my liberal arts classes than I was in my, um, my actual art classes. And I was forming better relationships with those professors. And um, I had a boyfriend in undergrad who 
was sort of a born academic and he kind of taught me how to do research in a way that I was not learning how to do in art school and <laughs> I got really into it. And so, um, you know, I, I guess I was, I had, I guess I had sort of natural talents for writing and research, but mm -hmm. I also wasn't a very good academic, um, I, which I learned in graduate school just because <laughs> I'm, my writing style is not an academic style and it's very hard for me to sort of mm -hmm. put my voice away, <laughs> Interesting. you know, and you became aware of this as you were trying to do these more academic papers yeah. in graduate school. Yeah, absolutely. So, did you try to conform? Did you try to put your voice away? I did. Um, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Maybe I didn't try very hard. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of wish that I had gone to graduate school when I was older. You know, going when I was like 22, right mm -hmm. out of undergraduate, I wasn't really mature enough for it. And so all the time I think about going back and getting a PhD because now I would really appreciate it. And now I, um, you know... I, I, d I wouldn't need graduate school to necessarily like teach me about movies so much. It would right. just sort of be a, a place to to um, work some other things out, I guess. I don't know. But that's interesting. I mean, it seems like it did at least teach you how to... It gave you the background, right? The broad base of knowledge that yeah. you are still using. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and then the skills for research and that kind of thing. So Yeah. But this, this thing of voice is really interesting to me. And... You know, reading the the two books of yours that I've read now, the George Lucas is the other one that I read. Um, you do have such a strong, authorial voice Thank in there, um, and I wondered, like, how does that serve you as when you were doing film criticism, for example, for Village mm -hmm. Voice uh, for LA Weekly? Um, you know, how much voice are you supposed to have? How much voice are you comfortable having? Mm -hmm. How much do you have to be? an academic about it or, you know, a little more scientific about it. I think that my, my experience for doing that kind of criticism was that it, you couldn't have enough voice. Mm -hmm. And if anything, sometimes I was asked by editors to make it less academic or like to yeah. sort of not necessarily, well, sometimes it was to dumb stuff down, but like oftentimes it was like, can you replace this word with a different word? Because I don't know what this word means. Or like, can you explain this in a less convoluted way? And, you know, also there's space requirements. And so a lot of the thing that's important in terms of writing newspaper criticism is like just getting it into 700 words and like, mm -hmm. and making it as sort of as it doesn't have to like read like it's for dummies, but it still has to be accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess the critics that we know, you know, by name, your mm -hmm. Paul and Kales just have such strong voices, like yeah. they're recognizable voices. Absolutely. Um, was that stuff that you discovered as you were, you know, realizing that you could, do this for a living? I was always drawn to stuff that was more personal, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, more personal, even if it wasn't necessarily in the first person or, you know. Sure. Um, so I was interested in Manny Farber really early on. And um, I guess, yeah, Kale more than Saris, mm -hmm. more than Andrew Saris. Um, although, you know, his book, The American Cinema, is pretty indispensable, too. The, um, I don't know. I guess that I... Um, I was always interested in criticism that put movies into context, that, that made you understand that this movie was made by human beings who live in the world. And mm -hmm. when I watch it, I am a human being in the world looking at an object, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know, that might be a very sort of obtuse thing to say, but like that's, um, that's something that I've always strived for. Um, and Hoberman, too, he... I forget where it was. I think it was in the intro to one of his books, but he had this line that I repeat all the time because it's, it seems so, it seems like such a goal, uh, even though it's such a simple thing, but he talked about how like film criticism is, um, about like the, the most important thing to do is to act as a reporter, giving a dispatch about what it's like to be in that room while that mm. movie is playing. That's um, and that's really, you know, it, that, that ties it to, um, the experience of like being in a room with a painting, um, mm -hmm. or, um, watching a theatrical performance. It makes it a very visceral and physical thing. Yeah. It's really interesting. And, it, and it's also about emotions. Yeah, which is, totally. This is why we want to experience these things. So if you can convey that. So how did you, I mean, it's, it's a weird question to ask cause it's about how did you learn how to write, but how <laughs> did you learn how to convey that? I don't know. Um, I think that I think that I've always read a lot 
Mm-hmm. And especially when, like, when I'm trying to learn how to do maybe like a different style or a different genre, I read as much as I can that's like that. Um, sure. But I don't think that I necessarily had to do that when I started writing film criticism because I had been doing it my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, You're telling about your experience in the theater. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I had been doing that my whole life, and I think a lot of us do just in terms of conversation, sure. but I had been reading film criticism my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Just as, like, for fun, like, as soon as I was sort of allowed to, like, leave the house by myself, um, I would leave my dad's house in Studio City and, like, walk a few blocks down to to, um, Laurel Canyon and Ventura Boulevard where there's a big newsstand, and I would just, like, sit there for an hour, like, reading all the magazines about movies, um, like, reading Variety even when I was, like, 10 or 11 years old. And then, like, you know, Entertainment Weekly started and, like, I had a subscription, like, the first year, you know. I was just always reading stuff. And I was also reading music criticism. Like, I was just sort of a fanatic reader of pop culture journalism from a very young age. And I never really stopped. And so I think that I, I don't know, I got kind of, like, internalized various people's voices. And I somehow got a voice in my head out of that that, um, you know, on a good day, (laughs) I'm able to get out onto a page. But it's still really hard. Oh, and th- this is something I'm really curious about is uh, your your habits. I mean, on this Meryl Streep book, you were under the gun a little yeah. bit. Which is um, better for me, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. So how do you work? Do you, do you, you put, what kind of hours do you put in? and Do you enjoy the process? I don't enjoy the process while it's happening most of the time, unless <laughs> I can sort of like, unless I can sort of forget what I'm doing, if I can sort of just go... Um, and that actually is, it's helpful, um, to be under like an insane deadline because you just have to do it. You can't think about like what you can't think about like the room I'm in is cold or like I haven't eaten or what am I going to do later? All you can think about is what's in front of you. Um, but I don't know. I, I think my habits have sort of, they sort of change project to project. I know when I was doing film reviews, I couldn't write at home and I couldn't write in my office. I had to go to coffee shops. And that was just the only way I could do it. Um, but so I mean, so, like we'd moved into this house a few months ago and I have this little office and so far so good working yeah. in the office. Like I, I haven't really had to leave the house to write since we've been here. It's like I'm in the office or I'm out on the deck. And like if it gets too hot or too cold out on the deck, I go into the office, you know, and the office actually like it's really nice at night <laughs> and I haven't written at night in two or three years, but I'm really getting into writing at night just because it's nice to be in my office. So how many hours do you think you put in a day? It depends on what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You're always working on something I would imagine. I am, but then it's like, you know, you have emails, like emails take, can sometimes take all day. Um, and you know, research, which some doesn't always produce anything. It Mm -hmm. can just be reading something or like, like making notes of different web pages that have information that you'll need to revisit later, things like that. And so I get, I get kind of hard on myself sometimes when I don't produce like, you know, a thousand words a day or whatever, like the minimum was that I set out for myself. And then Mm -hmm. I have to remind myself, Oh, but you know, you're trying to write a novel and today you finished reading a novel. So that helps. (laughs) It does. It's moving the ball forward, (laughs) Yeah, but it doesn't feel like, it feels like more treading water. Um, but (laughs) So you don't enjoy the process. But I enjoy it when it's done. I really, I really enjoy having a a finished product. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that some of my work is better than others, but the work of my, of mine that I think is good, I'm really proud of. And that's one of the reasons why I've like, I'm trying to do a lot of press for the street book because, Mm -hmm. you know, as I said, like I enjoyed writing about the Al Pacino, I enjoyed writing the Al Pacino book and the George Lucas book, but I feel like this Meryl Streep book is different from anything that is out there about her mm-hmm. and um, I'm just I really want to it's not even so much that I'm proud of my writing but like I want to have these conversations with people and, and I think they're good conversations to have I mean reading the book really made me look at we happened to you know we, I read it over Christmas and yeah. sat there with my wife's family and watched a bunch of movies yeah. and it made me look at every single movie in a different way I mean oh, wow. reading Thank a you. book about uh, this kind of hidden feminism in yeah. Meryl Streep's roles, and then going to see Frozen makes Frozen <laughs> a very different experience. Wow. Cool. Um, when did you start to discover this story, this Meryl Streep story, uh, in the process? And I, I can't conceive of like 
putting this thing together? Because <laughs> like, there's a sort of narrative to it. Right. Because uh, you're looking at it over time. Right. Um, and, and there's an interesting kind of growth to it. But, like, tell me about giving shape to this thing. And then I imagine you had to take so much away. Oh, yeah. Because it's also so streamlined. Yeah. I mean, I always overwrite anyway. But especially with something like this, it really goes back to that, you know, month or so of research that I do at the library where I'm, I start with the earliest things that are written about somebody. And I go as recent as there is stuff. Mm-hmm. And I read as much as I can. And... Um, I take notes of anything that's interesting. And I guess maybe, you know, pretty early in that process, like I stop writing down things that don't seem to relate to the things that I've already written down. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a flaw. Maybe I should sort of be more comprehensive about things, but pretty early on, you know, I mean, even something like the, the press notes for the deer hunter are really weird in that like they're they're well back then press notes were more extensive and Mm -hmm. they seem to be a little bit more candid like a little bit less publicist managed um and so there are all these quotes from Meryl Streep in those press notes basically being like I hated my character I can't relate to her at all and so I had as an actress to figure out a way in which I could understand her um and, you know, at the first time I read them, I was like, wow, it's so weird that they let her say this. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, no, it's not weird. Because actually, like, that's a pretty good narrative to have about this emerging actress of, like, I, I'm completely different from my character. I had to summon up some kind of crazy strength and intelligence in order to make her into a whole human being. Mm. And so even if it seems on the surface like it's insulting to the writer and director of the movie or the movie's whole project, it's promotional for the film because it suggests that like there's this incredible new talent on the scene <laughs> who can work magic acts. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting, and I think it was in that one and, and I guess the Silkwood chapter, too, about mm-hmm. how... She becomes an author of the film, one yeah. of the authors of the film, despite not writing a word. Right, and never getting credit as a producer or anything yeah, like that. That's really interesting. And I don't know if that's just like her generation. Like you wouldn't necessarily take credit. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that there is something, there, definitely something generational in terms of like the way her feminism was sort of under the radar, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of examples of her like trying to sort of um, demure and maybe like dismiss. Um, people who are kind of like asking her to take credit for her extraordinary accomplishments. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. I, I wonder if, you know, part of that, part of that quiet or hidden, some, especially in the beginning of her career, that hidden feminism is what has allowed her, in addition to her great talent, <laughs> to continue to work, you know. In Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's part of it. I think that, one thing that she understood um, from a very early age was that if you're somebody like Jane Fonda, who is very publicly known as being associated with political opinions, mm-hmm. that changes the way that people see you. It makes it harder for you to disappear into roles. And it can make it actually harder for you to make the points you want to make because you'll only yeah. be speaking to the choir. Yeah. And so Meryl Streep gets to make a movie like Silkwood, which is radical in a lot of ways, but in subject matter, in the way, in the, just the craft and the form of it, um, in the way she even looks in the movie. I mean, she looks crazy punk rock in that movie in this weird white trash way that's amazing and still totally sexy. Um, she gets to make a movie like that and, and um, you know, she gets away with radical stuff mm-hmm. because in, and doing radical stuff in the most mainstream way possible. Yeah. Uh, was there stuff? Uh, well, do you th- do you feel like you got in this book or or any of the books, the Pacino one or the George Lucas one, that you felt like you understood this character that you were writing about? Like, do you feel like you ever got the whole picture? I don't think you can ever get the whole picture, and I also don't. I don't think that even spending time with these people would have helped. You know, I think that everybody sort of gives you the version of themselves that they want to and. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not even when it comes to an actor. Maybe it's not even what they want. Maybe it's, you know, a career choice more than, like, you know, a personal choice. But um, I don't know. I I mean, that's sort of one thing that has me a little bit down on the whole idea of (laughs) reporting and, like, historiography right now, Mm. um, which is just that it's... You can only know one version of the truth. Yeah, and I think... But I think, like... 
choosing your angle on the thing helps you can help you around that hur- over that hurdle. Right. And, and certainly like with this book I, you know, had an argument that runs through it and yeah. so that I'm happy to sort of have it be kind of an oblique version of her story. Mm-hmm. Were you worried that, you know, halfway through this year, you would find out your argument didn't hold for like the second <laughs> half of her career? Like, oh shit. No, because I, I always knew that there was some, even from the very beginning, before I did any research, I knew that there was something remarkable about the fact that she has become a bigger movie star than she's ever been mm-hmm. as she was turning 60. Um, like that's crazy. That's nuts. It's, this has never happened to anybody before. And yeah. especially the kinds of movies that she's done. I mean, she's like a sexual creature in a lot of them. Yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting conversation yeah. to have in those, I guess with the, starting with the, um, ABBA movie, uh, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, but also Devil Wears Prada. I mean, yeah. it's like, I, I don't remember exactly how old she was when she made that movie, maybe like 58. Um, but she's, you know, it, it's said that her character is like the epitome of worldwide glamour. And I mean, this is most, most actresses her age that she like started with that had already been kicked off the screen for being yeah. too old, you know? So that's, I mean, even just that hmm. is really interesting. Were there surprises for you as you went along? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, probably too many to count, but I mean, like some of them were, were you know, something like The Bridges of Madison County is a mm-hmm. movie that I'd always kind of liked. Like, a, mm-hmm. you know, I'd always like seen bits and pieces of it on TV and just kind of felt like maybe it was a guilty pleasure. But really watching it um, over and over again and reading about it and thinking about where she was in her career when that movie was made and just sort of what it was doing as historical fiction, mm-hmm. um, I have a much, much deeper appreciation for it. And I really feel like it's, of all of the the um, films that have a full chapter devoted to them in my book, I feel like that's the one that's really ripe for rediscovery. But it's, it's, yeah, it's so funny. But it's totally the movie that you mentioned to people and they're like, I don't really want to watch that, but thanks anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And it was the one, I mean, that comes across so clearly in the book, but mm-hmm. it's the one in reading the chapter that I was like, I'm never going to watch this movie again. <laughs> oh my god, I might watch this movie again. Yeah. Uh, by the end of the chapter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. And was there stuff that, like, I hate to put it this way, but you had to kind of suffer through? I don't like The Iron Lady. Oh, I mean, you know, like, I don't like that, that movie. Was, that was but it was so. About, it was so important to have that be the final chapter in the book, mm-hmm. I thought, because of, like, how it sort of put, like, the end of the parentheses on this career that, in some ways, was so defined by like the number of Oscar nominations mm-hmm. and just sort of like talking I had to I felt like it was important to end the book by talking about this movie that like wasn't very good <laughs> and that she and like, ultimately probably doesn't even matter right exactly but that it matters in this sort of stupid sort of like yeah. subtweet <laughs> like way of it being you know like the movie that she finally won another Oscar for mm-hmm. Um, and I just kind of wanted to talk about like how that is not really maybe the best way to measure success um <laughs> But it was also just interesting, considering I had made this case of her as, like, a stealthy political creature, the idea of her playing somebody like Margaret Thatcher, who mm-hmm. held completely opposite views, I mm-hmm. thought was interesting. I thought the conversation, and along these lines, I thought that the conversation about the sort of cartoonish aspects that kind of started around Julie and Julia, mm-hmm. and maybe before, I can't really remember, but uh, that was very interesting to me. And, like, I, I wonder if it's just what we see in an actor who's been around for so long or if there is something to the broader she gets the better these movies do <laughs> um yeah i mean so well i mean all of those movies are all of the movies that she's made that have been really successful over the past few years have on some level been comedies mm-hmm. like even the iron lady is just full of like punchlines mm-hmm. you know well it's also so broad like it's almost yeah. farce yeah totally um and I don't know. Yeah, I mean, maybe there... I, that isn't actually something that I've really thought that much about, I guess. But maybe there is something to the idea of her being more accessible as an older woman if she's always kind of making fun of herself. I, yeah, I wonder if it's of herself or of the material. Like, of I the think, material, Well, yeah. I think we get that this is a yeah. smart, self-aware person, right. you know, from her first appearance to her last. So I right. wonder if it's like... Yeah, I know. I know I'm doing this. Yeah, <laughs> I know what kind of movie this is. Right. Let's all have a good time. Right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you definitely get that sense with Mamma Mia. 
Mm-hmm. If I had, that I haven't seen. If I had had an 11th chapter or if the Iron Lady chapter had been able to be twice as long, I would have written about <laughs> Mamma Mia and Iron Lady together mm-hmm. because it, they are the same director, but there's also, I like, the same sort of approach to history in that, like, it's just, a, like, a kaleidoscope and you can take what you want and, like, it's just sort of like a, a pastiche that doesn't care about context <laughs> in an interesting way. You've seen so many movies. You've uh, you've explored movies. You've turned these things over. Why are movies so bad? <laughs> well, and I'm saying this. This is my opinion. Why are like, movies so bad? You mean like uh, like I'm lucky if I see one or two movies a year mm-hmm. that are good. Well, maybe you're going to the wrong movies. <laughs> maybe I am. Yeah. I, I don't know. Iron I mean, Man three. Yeah, um, I came up with a list of like twenty best movies of the year this year, and um, you what, know there were things were, that I had to leave out of it. Really? Yeah. What were what were the great movies like? What is it that for you makes an interesting or great movie? Which isn't, I guess, necessarily the same thing. I guess it, it it differs, but maybe it just comes down to the thing that sort of makes like any work of art interesting, and in that it makes you think differently. Mm-hmm. when it's over, you know? What were some of those for you recently? Um, let's see. Well, Wolf of Wall Street it, it blew me away. Really? I'm really, really into that it's film. It's three hours. Yeah, I don't I care. see it. <laughs> yes, you can, because really? it'll just go like that. All right. I'm convinced. Um, okay. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's um, the best Leonardo DiCaprio performance of his career, hands down. Um, for a while, it's like a Jerry Lewis movie. It's... Really, really unrestrained physical comedy. For the first, like, two hours and 15 minutes or so, it's basically Martin Scorsese's Jackass. Um, what? It's like, you, please go see it. You won't regret it. That's insane. That makes yeah. me want to see it. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, I love Spring Breakers. Mm-hmm. I loved Enough Said. I think Enough Said is, like, the best romantic comedy in years. I think Julia Louis-Dreyfus in it is, like, next level in terms of her performance. How so? Um, it's, it's just some of, the, some of the shots of her, the things she's doing with her face, are things that somebody would do in comedy, and she's doing them in very serious situations. Just the way that it, it combines super high-concept comedy that shouldn't be happening in the real world with things that people feel in the real world mm-hmm. is really interesting. Um, and just the performances are nuts, super good. Um, there, do you know about this documentary, The Act of Killing? I don't know. You should see this documentary, The Act of Killing. It? It's um, This filmmaker went to Indonesia and he started spending time with this guy who was this warlord um, who basically helped perpetrate a a genocide. I want to say, I'm going to get the dates wrong. I want to say it's like the late 60s, early 70s. Mm It's around the time of Vietnam, and it was basically, the genocide was um, sanctioned basically by the U.S. because they were like, oh, you're killing communists, right? That's cool. But they weren't just killing communists. They were killing basically anybody who fell out of, um, you know, total agreement with, like, the fascist government that was running the country so he goes and he's hanging out with this guy who's now in his 60s but he's a national hero like he goes on talk shows every night and like he's celebrated and this guy is like you know when we were like doing our killing like we were so inspired by Elvis movies and the Godfather and so the documentarian gets basically gives this guy and his friends a budget and hires a film crew and has them like direct design and act in reenactments of their killings Holy cow. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So you should see that movie because it's really good. And it's not three hours long. (laughs) That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, And the thing, I mean, I I guess what I'm looking for in a movie is a couple of things. And one is I just want to enjoy myself. Right. Um, Which is, like, I'm sure 12 Years a Slave is great, but (laughs) I know it's not for me. Yeah, it's a bummer. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but the other thing I'm looking for is a point of view, mm-hmm. right? And and I feel like, and again, like, the more I read this goddamn Meryl Streep book, <laughs> <laughs> the more I could, I had to turn off American Hustle after three oh, minutes. Oh, God, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, Talk about a movie that's lacking any kind of focus. Um, are there filmmakers that you look at and, like, I will see anything that person does or, like, I always have high expectations of that person. Yeah, I mean, Harmony Korine's one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Thomas. always interesting. Yeah, totally. Paul Thomas Anderson's the big one for me. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Who else? Uh, tell, me, tell me about Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay. Sell me on Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, God. I you lost me with the master, I guess. Really? Oh, I love the master. Um, I think that, I think that, I don't know, it's funny that you, I guess, aren't on <laughs> Team PTA, because I do think all of his movies have a point of view that's completely unique. Mm-hmm. Um, uh I just I don't think I don't see that anybody else using the tools of cinema to do as much as he's doing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take that apart a little bit. Okay. <laughs> what does that mean to you? Like, how is, explain to me how he is using the tools of cinema? Because again, like I really dug Boogie Nights, mm-hmm. uh, um, and I liked one of his other movies too. I can't remember what it was. Uh, there will be blood. I didn't. Okay. Okay. I put, I got the screener for There Will Be Blood. Yeah. And I put in the wrong side first. It was a two-sided one. Yeah. And I watched about a half hour and was like, this might be the middle of the movie. <laughs> might be the beginning. There's no way to know. Right. Uh, but tell me about those tools that he's using yeah. uh, that in an interesting way, too. I think that he is the most interesting director working right now for a number of reasons. Um, but it really is the thing that sort of trumps it all for me is the fact that everything in his movies is so top-notch and always working towards the same idea. So Mm -hmm. that's, you know, not just performance quality, but but performance style. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's camera work, it's music, it's color palette, it's um, mood, it's um, the ways in which he's able to toggle between, like, a psychological point of view... And um, a more objective point of view. Um, his movies always seem to take place both in somebody's head and out in the world in this way that's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and yeah, there is nobody else who's really doing that kind of thing, is there? I just, yeah, I mean, I just feel like there's him, and then there's, you know, Scorsese's like right here below <laughs> him, and then there's a l- some space. <laughs> Are there, I mean, do you look at, like, all, like, all, like, so many uh, critics do, like, that 70s era of film and go cuckoo brains for it? Or is Scorsese still <laughs> kind of right there? Um, um, I, I'm really interested in that era. And I don't, I don't love 100% of the movies, mm-hmm. but I'm interested in the conditions of production and um, the idea that there was a very brief window in which possibilities were open mm-hmm. or there was a, the perception that possibilities <laughs> were open. I'm not sure how realistic it is. I'm actually writing something right now, which is sort of like Hollywood historical fiction set in that era. Okay. And I'm not totally sure what it is yet. Um, but I do know that in doing research for like nine months, I wasn't able to find a single Hollywood novel told from the point of view of a woman who was in the industry who wasn't an actress. Wow. And so, <laughs> um, I'm, trying to write something to fill that hole. That's great. Yeah. Um, that time is interesting to me also, and I bring it up because I've been thinking about it recently, because even like the romantic comedies of the time, like the studio movies, mm-hmm. have this amazing look and like lived-in feel to them. Yeah. Which I feel like we don't get anymore. And yeah. I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's the slickness that I'm reacting to now yeah. that I just don't want any part of. Yeah, I know, it's true. I mean, I one of the reasons why I'm not really that interested in being a weekly film critic anymore is mm-hmm. just because you get on this treadmill of having to see everything, first of all. Like, if you don't see one movie, then it's just this failure. And then you have to write about a lot of them, and you have to have opinions about everything. Mm-hmm. And so many movies don't really qualify, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't know if just qualify, they exist, but like... Just because doesn't mean they have right, to be... Right, yeah, just because they have been made, and most of the time, like, you can understand why a movie was made, you know, for various commercial reasons, or even, you know, sort of like self-indulgent creative reasons, but um, it doesn't necessarily mean that I have anything to say about them. And Yeah, how do you, when you were doing weekly reviews, how do you find the thing to say? I mean, were you tempted to phone in these things on occasion? I mean, sometimes you have to, honestly, and yeah. usually, I mean, often the things that I felt like I was phoning the most in, or phoning in the most, <laughs> um, were things like, you know, they show you like the Green Lantern on Tuesday night knowing that your review is due at 8 a.m. Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. And so you have to figure out something to say immediately after you watch a movie that is not designed for critics. Let's put it that way. Um, And that's a good way to put it. I mean, there's a difference between, like you said, between these movies that are getting made for various commercial reasons mm -hmm. and a movie that will stand up to 
any kind right. of criticism. And, you know, in a perfect world, like, those those movies find a place to meet, you know? And I think, like, Iron Man 2 is an example of a movie that, like, has some really interesting things going on in it, even if, like, I checked out for the last 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Hunger Games movies do, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, th- th- these Fast and Furious movies are getting better and better because they really? because they're getting crazier, um, because, like, they're, they're understanding exactly what it is that the audience is responding to in them. And so they are, they are like, no other movies that are being made. And they're really, really fun to watch. And so that, that's yeah. something where it's, like, it, they don't give a shit about critics. Like, they don't care about me, but I right. care about them because <laughs> they give me such a, an exhilarating time. I mean, I saw the most recent one in Paris, and I was, like... I'd had a terrible day and went to the movies really late at night and I walked out like feeling like I was on drugs, like feeling like I had taken a hit of ecstasy. It was so exhilarating. (laughs) That's awesome. That's all we want from movies, right? Right. (laughs) Just to feel like we're on drugs. Exactly. So again, why don't you like Paul Thomas Anderson? (laughs) Uh, The wrong kind of drugs for me. I don't know. I know subtext is a big problem. Absolutely. And it's not just a problem with Hollywood movies. I mean, a lot of American indie movies, and even like a lot of sort of boilerplate foreign films, you know, it's just like, it is what it is. And that's not that interesting. Let's talk about fiction for a minute. Okay. Um, Is your approach to fiction different from criticism or from, you know, any prose nonfiction? I don't know yet. Um, I'm still sort of figuring it out. I've never, I've never taken any kind of like writing, creative writing workshop or anything like that. Um, well, you've done it, which is seventy percent of. Well, I'm trying to do it right now. Um, I'm trying to write something right now, and I don't, I don't feel, I don't know. I've, I've had a, a couple of good writing days recently, but like I don't totally understand what it is that I'm doing, and so I'm <laughs> a little afraid to talk about it because I feel like I'm gonna, you know. Mm-hmm. To sort of talk ahead of what I'm actually doing. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I, I guess my sort of approach to try figuring out how to do it was to read a lot of it. And so I've okay. read a lot of Hollywood novels over the past year. Um, I've, re- I've read books that I never knew existed. I've read the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the classic Hollywood novels? Well, it's like Play It As It Lays. I don't know. It's Joan Didion. Uh, um, uh, the Last Tycoon. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, why am I drawing a blank? <laughs> oh, uh, Dave the Locust. Mm-hmm. Um, those are probably like the big three. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I've read, there were a lot, there's a big vogue of this kind of thing in like the late 20s and early 30s, sort of like as the transition to sound was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a big vogue of people writing about that era from mm-hmm. a later perspective. Um, so. I've read a lot of stuff like that. The one big sort of discovery for me this year was this novel, The Western Coast by Paula Fox. Um, she's, uh, she was writing in the seventies. I want to say she wrote a novel who, which I haven't read yet and whose name I can't remember, but it's like, it's something that like a few years ago, Jonathan Franzen like championed and he's like, this is better than all that shit you guys read and call the canon. And so she like now all of her books, which were out of print are now in print. And so, um, this book, The Western Coast, is about, like, a 17-year-old girl in New York who's basically abandoned by her family, and, like, she doesn't know, she doesn't have anything to do with her life, and so she, like, hitches a ride with, like, some vague friend to uh, Hollywood, and she ends up, like, you know, working first as a costume girl, and then, um, like, taking basically a lot of odd jobs, and she's sort of surrounded by two types of people, like, Hollywood people and communists, and there's, like, she's, like, kind of in the middle of this Venn diagram between the two of them, and it's just sort of about how, like, everybody's trying to exploit her, and um, it's just so beautifully written, and but dry and dark and kind of awful. <laughs> um... For you as a reader, what were, what were the books that made an impression? Um, from Whether it's from a young age or right. you know, even more recently. Well, I guess like the, I mean, probably the first novel I ever read where I was like, I kind of understood something about fiction that I, um, you know, that it was more than just storytelling, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's something that stuck with me and it's going to sound so silly when I say it, but it's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Like that's a, I, you know, I know that Judy Bloom is really sort of, she holds her movie rights really tight, mm. <laughs> but that's, I mean, there's like three books that I've read in my life where like if anybody was ever going to do a movie adaptation, like I would want to be the person to do it. <laughs> and it starts with Judy Bloom. It starts what with, are you there, God? The, it's me, Margaret. The lightning bolt about that book. 
How old were you in Reddit? I was probably the age of the protagonist, you okay. know, or maybe I was a little younger. I think it's the girl in it is 11. And I was maybe nine or 10 when sure. I read it, but, um, Judy Bloom has this incredible way of, um, making children feel like real human beings. Absolutely. And, um, and just the, like the voice of the 11 year old girl in that book took the 11 year old girl seriously in a way that I was really longing for somebody to take me seriously, I guess at that mm-hmm. age. But I reread parts of it recently and it's, it's, you know, it takes me right back there, you know? Awesome. So it's, but it's, you know, for me, it's like, I kind of, I want to celebrate stuff like that while at the same time, like, you know, I, I've been reading, um, Gore Vidal's history novels this year, you know, mm-hmm. like I read Burr, which blew me away. Burr is like yeah. the literary equivalent of house of cards. Um, wow. it's super great. And then I just finished reading his, another one from that series, actually Hollywood, um, which, um, interweaves like the Wilson administration with, um, uh, basically like, uh, the, it basically explains how, um, a censorship board was created in Hollywood and um, how oh, the Hayes code came along, yeah. but it's like starts with the Wilson administration mm-hmm. and it gets there eventually. Oh, um, I'm, so yeah, I mean, I've been reading a lot of historical fiction this year, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Another book that I read over the past couple of years that was a big surprise for me is the way we live now by Anthony Trollope. It's like, Oh, it's a, like yes. a doorstop, um, and I read it on vacation in Provence, <laughs> sitting by a pool. <laughs> and I, but I couldn't put it down. I just yeah. and I got so into the the language of it, the antiquated language, and I started mm-hmm. speaking in an English accent, like without even realizing it, and, and just being like, "Fancy a dram of brandy." <laughs> so that would be you. You understand that the antiquated language would be a. Hurdle for most people, right? Yeah, I don't. I guess the thing that I don't know. We didn't have any TV or internet, you know, and (laughs) but I did have this 800-page novel, and so that's great. Got really into it. Do you feel like that stuff will all kind of feed into whatever you're putting out? I don't know. I hope so. I guess. I I mean, who knows if you can put your finger on it? It's really exciting to be doing something that I don't know how to do, Mm -hmm. and just sort of, and then you know, I have no agent, I have no publisher asking for this. I can just sort of. When I have free time, I can do whatever I want to do. Um, and I don't know if it's going to be anything, mm-hmm. but it's exciting to be in that place and not know. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that's part of the fun of writing is that discovery. Yeah. Uh, that's great. I won't press you on it. Okay. I, can't, I can't wait to hear more about it when it's time. Okay, cool. Um, we talked about movies a little bit. Uh, we end as we always end. Um, what are you, what are you excited about these days that's on television? You talked about movies, but books recently, mm-hmm. uh, anything you want to, anything that's getting you inspired? I okay. Well, I'm, the most, I guess the most recent novel that I finished that I found inspiring was the flamethrowers by Rachel Kushner. Mm-hmm. It was nominated for the national book award this year. Yeah. Um, it's really great. It was that out of nowhere thing, right? Wasn't it? I don't know. Um, okay. I made me think she's. Of it's her second novel, but it, it is kind of a strange book. I mean, it's about like a young woman in 1970s New York who is both like a conceptual artist and like a motorcycle freak. And she ends up, you know, just sort of falling into an affair with an older guy who is himself a conceptual artist and the heir to a motorcycle fortune. Um, but it's, again, I mean, it's just a movie that really like gets inside a woman's head and mm-hmm. makes that a really interesting place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, TV. What am I into on TV? Um, I just finished Masters of Sex. Did you enjoy Which it? I started out, like, not really enjoying, and I was sort of like, this is, this is like, uh, preschool madman. But I got really into it after a while. Um, and I th- definitely felt like it was getting more and more interesting episode to episode. I, you know, there's, like, the stuff that I watch, like, that, which is good, and then I watch a lot of stuff that I sort of can't watch when my boyfriend's around, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm not going to subject him to scandal. He just, like, <laughs> he needs to let me have that, and, I, you know, I'll watch it on VOD when he's not around. Um, although, there, we do end up watching a lot of, like, Lifetime and Hallmark movies together because we like them for the same reasons, I think, which is just sort of, like, seeing... They're all the same story, you know? They're mm-hmm. all completely formulaic, but within those formulas, like sometimes really interesting things happen that are really? usually just sort of nutty and funny. <laughs> but then sometimes like I find myself like getting a tear in my eye at the end, like when like the movie like gives this woman exactly what she wants and she's so thankful for it. And it's just like, 
because it is really it's this sounds like such like a school marmish like hectoring feminist thing to say but like it is so rare to be watching something on television and seeing a woman like get her like deepest desire fulfilled <laughs> like it's so rare to see something where that like takes that desire seriously mm-hmm. um Sure, and it's it's probably at its most simplistic. Yeah. And it's a closed thing so they can achieve that. I mean yeah. that doesn't make for good drama. No, I mean they're but. they're not really dramatically satisfying at right. all. Although I did watch this one the other day. It was called Magic of Ordinary Days. <laughs> like I saw that in the guide and I was like, I'm there and it was <laughs> this period piece set during World War Two on a farm in Colorado and it starred Carrie Russell as this woman who got like knocked up by a soldier who then abandoned her and so her dad, who was like a religious guy, basically sold her in marriage to Skeet Ulrich who was like a farmer and it was like they had this kind of deal where like they would be married like when the baby was born but then like no promises after that or something I I, it was hard to sort of figure out the logic of the movie but it was like all the performers in it Skeet Ulrich included were way too good for the material and they were taking it really seriously and they just I couldn't stop watching it it was something I put on because I was like oh this will be funny but then it wasn't funny at all it was just a really like beautifully made movie it's hilarious yeah sometimes they sneak through yeah that's really funny um, well, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you. I thank you for in, indulging me talking about oh, Hallmark movies. Oh. <laughs> Listen, we could do another half hour on Hallmark movies. We'll do a whole panel. Okay, cool. Um, but Meryl Streep, Anatomy of an Actor. Um, check it out. I really liked it. So I hope people will, will go. Oh, you know what I want to talk about before we wrap up? Okay. You're doing the screenings. Yeah, the new uh, Beverly. this will come out next week. So oh, that's great. We'll, we'll precede those. So when are they? What screenings? That sounds like so much fun. Okay, so I'm doing uh, six nights at the new Beverly starting January 24th and wrapping up January 29th. Um, the first two nights are a double feature of She Devil and Death Becomes Her, which is sort of like I yeah. almost feel like we're blowing our wad like immediately. Because, <laughs> no, it's the gateway. Yeah, on some level, like I feel like I wrote a book about Meryl Streep in order to be able to have a double feature of She Devil and Death Becomes Her. Um, I really like both movies, but I've you know there's a case to be made that Death Becomes Her is like the big budget summer would be tentpole remake of. She Devil the B movie, mm-hmm. like She Devil is like in John Waters land, <laughs> and then there's this Robert Zemeckis like groundbreaking sci-fi special yeah. effects bonanza. Um, so those are going to be really interesting. Uh, cool. The following two, you'll, na- you'll do a chat with them. As I'm well? going to talk in between every movie, introduce every movie, and talk in between every two, every movie, um, and then I'm going to do like poster giveaways and stuff like cool. that. And we'll have books for sale. Um, so that's Friday and Saturday. Then mm-hmm. Sunday and Monday is Postcards from the Edge and Defending Your Life. Mm-hmm. Um, great movies, both. Mike Nichols directed Postcards from the Edge, and Albert Brooks, of course, did Defending Your Life. So that's a really cool comedy double feature. Yeah. Um, and then the following two nights, which I guess are um, <clears throat> Tuesday and Wednesday, it's all Sophie's Choice. Because it's long, and you can't really pair it with anything because it's so <laughs> intense. Um, so... You know, we're we're ending on a down note. You know, Sophie's Choice is not fun entertainment. It's right. the Twelve Years a Slave of its year, <laughs> but um, much like Twelve Years a Slave, like it um, is, uh, it's putting you through torture for a reason. And it's, I mean, the Meryl Streep performance in it is just like it's. She's figuring out how to act for the camera mm-hmm. for oh, in a way that she hadn't before, and it's still such a standard bearer in terms of just the way that she responds to the camera and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. there's fascinating conversation to be had about all of these, but mm-hmm. Sophie's Choice particularly was such a turning point. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, I ha- we haven't figured out exactly what night it is yet, so I'll let you know, but I think on one of the nights, like, Ryan Johnson, my boyfriend, is going to do, like, a and a with me Fun. in between the movies. So great. Uh, well, those will be great. If you're in L.A., go check them out. Uh, that'll be fun. I'm going to try to come to the... Uh, Postcards from the Edge, Defending Your Life 1. Cool. I haven't seen those forever, and I really enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. This was fun. Now leaving Nerdist.com.